You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey family, it's good to be with you today. Uh, today we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, which you just heard read. You know, uh, some passages of the Bible are challenging because they're confrontational. They confront the way we think about things or the way we perceive or live in the world. Uh, and some passages of the Bible are challenging because they're confusing. We read them and we stop and go, wait a minute, what, what did that just say? The passage we're reading today is one of those rare gems in the scriptures that is actually both of these. Uh, when you first hear it, you think, you know, I'm not 100% sure what that means, but I am pretty sure that I don't like it. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg goes as far as to say that verse 12 is the single most scrutinized verse of scripture in recent scholarship. So, Happy Sunday. I uh, hope you've had your coffee because we are about to just dive right in and do our best to clear some of these things up because I believe that when we do, we'll see that this text actually has some really powerful good for us. But up front, I wanna, I wanna just say a few things. First, I wanna say that there is a way to approach this passage and other passages of scripture like it and already have a problem with it right out of the gate. Uh, when it comes to the Bible, some of us, I would say, are more American than we are Christian. And what I mean by that is that many of us have what I would call a Marie Kondo approach to the Bible, meaning that we like to keep whatever quote-unquote sparks joy, and then whatever doesn't, we like to toss out. And that's a fantastic way to organize your closet, but a terrible way to approach the Bible. What we need to learn to do is we need to learn to come to the scriptures and submit our cultural biases and assumptions to the word of truth, not the other way around. And that's what I hope we do today. But secondly, I wanna say that there is a way to approach this text and others like it and land differently theologically than where we're gonna land today. And I just wanna say when it comes to this text specifically, that is completely okay. Uh, this is not a passage that should break Christian fellowship. When it comes to this passage and others like it, everyone is having to do their best in light of what the scriptures teach clearly elsewhere. And we just need to humbly respect that. And I do want to specifically mention, and I think it bears bringing up, that we even have members of our own church who land differently than we do theologically here, but they are not divisive. And honestly, I want to make special mention of them to honor them today because I really believe that they set an incredible example for us for what it looks like to dwell together in unity with each other. In fact, they probably live out some of the things that this text says better than those who agree theologically because the primary muscles they have to use are muscles of submission and love. And over and over and over again in the scriptures, the Bible is just gonna uphold that and honor it to lift it up. And I wanna do that for you this morning as well. In fact, for what it's worth, I hope to follow your example of humility a little bit today. I wanna be a little less preachy as we go through this text and instead just invite us to explore it together. So let's begin by laying a little bit of groundwork. So in the middle of this passage, Paul is gonna reference the creation of Adam and Eve as if it has something to bear on what he's saying. So I think the best place for us to start is to look back at Genesis 1 and develop an appropriate understanding of how God designed this whole human project and maleness and female, femaleness to actually work. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 together. This is what it says. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, so right here out of the gate, Genesis teaches us some very important things about gender. Here's what we learn. First, that gender is created by God. Gender is not a social construct. While the ways in which maleness and femaleness at times, but not always, can be socially constructed, being male and female at their core are not. Maleness and femaleness are rooted in God's design of the world. They are given to us by God, and they play a crucial role in what it means to be made in God's image. The second thing we see is that men and women are equal, period. Men and women are equal. He created both in his image, and he gave both the dignity of being co-rulers or kings and queens, if you like that language, partners with him and ruling over the creation that he made. For the creator, men and women are equal parts of humankind. They are equal in worth, equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in honor, equal, 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 equal. Men are not better than women. And any theology that teaches or culture that models otherwise is misguided. And women are not better than men. Likewise, any theology that teaches or culture that models that is equally misguided. Men and women equally show off unique aspects of the character and person of God. And humanity would not be complete without them both. But third, men and women are different, period. God created them male and female. He did not make them the same. Equality does not mean androgyny. Men and women reflect the glory of God in unique and different, but equally important ways. And in the next chapter of Genesis, it highlights those ways a bit for us. In Genesis 2, God places man, Adam, which is just the Hebrew word for man, in the garden, and he gives him responsibility. He gives him the responsibility to care for the garden, to keep it, to cultivate it, to ensure that the creation that God made thrives according to God's goodwill and design. But pretty immediately, God recognizes that this is a little bit too much for Adam on his own, so he brings woman into the picture. This is what we see in Genesis 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, that word helper there is the Hebrew word ezer. We translate it helper, but honestly, that makes things a little bit more difficult for us when it comes to understanding womanhood, because in our culture, we kind of have this disdain for the word helper. We think of it often as like a second-class citizen or daddy's little helper or whatever, but that is not what's being described here in the Bible. Biblically speaking, Isaiah is the idea of supporting strength. So think of like the steel girders that support and stabilize a skyscraper holding it together. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Azair. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. Two of those times are in reference to the first woman. Three are in reference to people either helping or failing to help in life-threatening situations. But the other 16, the other 16 are in reference to God himself, specifically referencing God's power and ability to rescue. The point here is that woman is a supporting strength designed to be a source of stability and security and ever-present help to the purposes of God through mankind in the world. If you grew up in a home or you've been around a woman who does not bring this kind of strength or stability into life, but instead becomes a source of instability or chaos, like you know just how damaging that can be to herself and everyone around her. 
Likewise, if you've grown up or been around men who don't take responsibility, you know just how bad things can go in that situation. Man was designed for responsibility and woman for the stability and strength to make it all happen. Now, obviously much has gone wrong for this vision for humanity. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve decide to do what is right in their own eyes, and in so doing, they fracture the order of creation itself. Woman's strength is misused, and man's responsibility is vacated. And it's really important to note who God holds primarily responsible for this fall. Paul actually references this in verse 15. Even though Eve was the first to listen to the devil's lie, it's the man, Adam, who was the first called to account. And the subsequent effects of their actions broke how God designed creation and humanity specifically to operate. From the abdication of our God-given responsibilities to the oppression of women, even all the way down to the outright denial of maleness and femaleness as objective truths. And if we're honest, we just have to admit that women specifically have borne the brunt of just how badly this has gone in our world. But this is where the church comes into play. You see, the church is God's picture of a renewed humanity. The language we've used before is that the church is a signpost of the coming kingdom. The redeemed people of God are meant to repaint the portrait for the rest of the world, what life looks like under God's loving rule and reign, what humanity was originally supposed to be. We are a people saved from our sinfulness and the fall to walk in new life, life as it was intended to be. This is our honor and privilege as God's people. We get to rehearse here on earth life in God's kingdom. And that has all kinds of implications for our lives. But it includes what it means to be men and women. It includes stepping into what it really means to be male and female, sons and daughters of the king. And that's the context by which we have to understand what the entire New Testament and this section of 1 Timothy specifically is saying when it gives any kind of instruction on how we are to live as men and women in God's church. So with that as our starting point, let's look back at the text. Let's get into verse 11. Here's what it says. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So initially, the words submissiveness and remain quiet probably jump off the page to us as really, really retrograde. It sort of feels like this might be all the evidence we need to conclude that the Bible thinks that the woman's place is in the kitchen keeping quiet. But that's that's not actually what's going on here. Let's clear some things up. So when it comes to any text of Scripture, especially hard texts like this one, there are two important principles of interpretation we have to apply. I want to highlight them for you, and then we'll use them together in this text. The first of which is the principle of history. The principle of history. The principle of history is the awareness that God has revealed scriptural truth in specific historical and specific cultural settings. See, the scriptures were not written to a 21st century American audience. They were written for an ancient Middle Eastern audience. And so if we're going to rightly understand what the Bible has to say to us today, we first have to understand what it meant to the original author and the original audience. And usually that leads us to two important questions about any text. What what part of the text is cultural expression and what part never actually changes? The second principle is the principle of harmony. 
which means that we interpret scripture in light of scripture, or to put it another way, that the scriptures work in harmony with each other to give us the whole truth. We don't just look at texts in isolation of each other. We actually look at the whole. So a really great example of this is the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no explicit place in the Bible that says that God is Trinity, three persons, one God. But when you look at the scriptures in total, you see it all over the place. You see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all treated as God, all treated as one. And rudimentarily speaking, this is how the doctrine of the Trinity is formed. So first, based on the principle of harmony, one thing we can know right out of the gate about this text is that this is not a wholesale prohibition of women from speaking or teaching at all times and in all circumstances within the church. We know from other places in scripture, including Paul's own writings, that women are encouraged to speak and play an active role in the church, including, but not limited to, using gifts of teaching and prayer and prophecy. These are passages like Titus 2.3, which encourages women to teach what is good. And 1 Corinthians 11, where that indicates that Paul expects women to pray and prophesy when the church is gathered together, but in appropriate and respectful ways. So what we can conclude is that this text is not about teaching per se, but about authority, specifically the expression of authority through teaching. And this actually harmonizes with a lot of other context clues from the rest of the letter. So for example, the Greek word used here for have authority is the word authenteo. And it's an incredibly interesting word. In fact, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this word appears. So to understand it, what we have to do is look outside of the New Testament to see how it was used. And we see it used within a hundred years of 1 Timothy in ancient writings. And in the context of those cases, most scholars conclude that it's better to translate it as to usurp authority. That whatever Paul is prohibiting about teaching here, it seems to be tied to the negative action about taking an authority that belongs to another. In chapter three, which we'll get to next week, Paul talks about elders or what we call pastors. Around here, we use those terms interchangeably. He talks about pastors and how they are meant to serve as overseers and responsibility takers for the spiritual vitality of a congregation. And one of the chief ways that Paul indicates that they express this authority is through the vehicle of teaching. Specifically, elders or pastors oversee and lead through teaching. At the end of the letter in chapter five, Paul connects these ideas again. He references pastors who rule well, which is an authority term, and labor in preaching and teaching. This parallelism in the same letter would lead us to understand that whatever he means by teaching here, it's in reference to an authoritative function within the church itself, specifically the authoritative role of pastors. Therefore, it's logical to conclude that in verses 11 and 12, he's not saying that women should always and only stay quiet but rather that they should respect the authority of the pastors who are in charge of them. And uh, at the principle of history, it actually backs this up as well. The historical and cultural context, they also support this idea. For one, his first clause, let a woman learn, would would have been dramatically unorthodox in this period, specifically for anybody coming from a Jewish background in this congregation. So we've mentioned this in other places, but when it comes to levels of Jewish higher learning, women were cut off from anything uh, past what we would consider elementary school. The Jewish Talmud, in fact, from the 200 says this. It says, it would be better for the words of the Torah, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, to be burned than they should be entrusted to a woman. You see, this is part of what made Jesus so incredibly radical, that he welcomed men, women, and children to follow him, to learn from him. 
In the story of Mary and Martha in the gospels where Mary sits at Jesus's feet and Martha is busy with the housework, Jesus says that Mary chose what was better. You know, he's not merely talking about being a busybody versus slowing down and spending time with Jesus. When somebody would sit at a rab- their rabbi's feet, this was a way of seeking to learn from them, to listen and become like their teacher, to essentially become a disciple. Martha was doing what culturally speaking, the woman was supposed to do. Mary was doing something that was only reserved for men in this context. And Jesus is saying, Martha, where Mary is at, that's where I want you. That's where I want everyone. We read this text and we bristle at the words submissiveness and quiet, but a first century Jew would have bristled much, much earlier. Secondly, we have to keep in mind Paul's whole purpose behind writing this letter in the first place. His purpose behind writing this is to root out heresy. You see, Ephesus was a center for the cult of Artemis. It was a female-only cult where women basically dictated everything to men. And it's likely that the women being reached by this young church were former wealthy women who at the very least were influenced by this cult, if not members of it altogether. These verses come right after Paul's appeal to these women to not be distracting from Christ. In fact, they're a part of the exact same instruction. And some scholars argue that the spreading of the false teaching in the Ephesian church was potentially due to wealthy single women who were influenced by this weird mixture of Jewish and pagan belief who spent their time going from house to house gossiping and spreading this false teaching to others arguing for what Paul would call a higher spirituality that denied eating certain foods and marriage and sex, which also some scholars contend that was was what was causing the quarreling with all the men. Historically speaking, what we have happening here in this church is some women apparently attempting to distract from the gospel of Christ by establishing an authority of their own, similar to their surrounding culture. Apart from the leaders of the church, apart from Timothy and Paul and others, specifically by teaching and encouraging others to follow patterns of life that were contrary to the gospel. And Paul's point here is this is not how things should go in the renewed community of God. In the renewed community of God, there are men under God's authority who have been given the responsibility to shepherd your soul and you should listen to them and receive what they have to say, not trying to unseat them or do your own thing. Now, we may be tempted at this point to say, okay, great. So this was a specific command to a specific problem. Women in Ephesus were being distracting from the work of Christ by usurping authority. So Paul establishes some boundaries for them. It's a cultural instruction to a cultural problem. And that makes sense until the next verse. Let's keep moving. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul jumps out of his contextual teaching and he grounds his argument in creation. To clarify, he's not saying that women should follow the instruction of verses 11 and 12 because they are more easily duped than men. Rather, this is a reference back to our first parents' initial failures in the garden. Adam was created first and and thus had the responsibility to care for Eve and guard the truth, and he didn't do it. He had the responsibility and he abdicated it. He did not step up with godly, gracious leadership, and thus sin entered the world. The most logical conclusion we can draw from all of this is not that women are more susceptible to lies, therefore they should not teach. And it's not that women are inferior to men, so only men should lead. Rather, the most logical and biblically harmonious conclusion is that men, qualified men, are, to be, are the ones meant to shoulder the responsibility of overseeing the church. 
And both women and non-elder men should gladly submit to that leadership. His point to the Ephesian church is what you are doing, whether you are aware of it or not, is setting the stage for garden-like events all over again. You're making room for your men to further abdicate their responsibility and preventing women from flourishing as the azare that they are made to be because you can't be a supporting strength if you're trying to tear down what Christ has built. And his point is, is that if the church is meant to reflect the renewed reality of life in the kingdom, then that must include men embracing the responsibility they previously forfeited. It must include the oversight, shepherding, care, and protection of God's family as was intended for Adam. And for us, this is why we only have men as pastors. This is what locks in the view of male eldership for me personally. Because if Paul were strictly dealing with something that was only a cultural issue, he wouldn't appeal to creation. An appeal to, a, to, to the created order is an appeal to something that is timeless. The most common pushback to the things that Paul lays out in this text that it's, are that it's all cultural or that he's only dressing us something specific for the church in Ephesus. But if that was the case, he wouldn't have drawn this argument. And because he stops in this moment and draws their attention to the created order, what we have to recognize is that it applies to us as much as it applies to them. Both women and non-elder men should come into the church with a teachable spirit and a posture to listen attentively to the God-ordained leaders in the church, not trying to usurp their authority, but using their various gifts to support it for their good and the good of the rest of the church. This is part of how we rehearse life together in God's kingdom. And just in case anyone was struggling with this text up to this point, he wraps it up with this fun little tidbit in verse 15. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Paul apparently likes to keep everything very easy. <laughs> Once again, though, when we apply the principle of harmony, we know what he's not saying. We know he's not saying that giving birth saves women from their sin. The scriptures are unequivocally clear elsewhere, including 1 Timothy itself, that Jesus saves sinners. Not Jesus plus fertility, not Jesus plus the 2.5 and the white picket fence, just Jesus. If this were the case, Paul wouldn't encourage elsewhere, like in 1 Corinthians 7, for women to stay single. Instead, he'd say, no, 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 you need to get married and you need to get married quick and start having a bunch of babies because the fate of your soul is at stake. But he never, ever, ever does that. Now, there are a few possible things that Paul could be referencing here in verse 15. And I'll talk about some of them in our midweek podcast that gets released on Wednesdays in our normal sermon feed. But I'm only gonna address one that seems to me to be the most consistent with the rest of what Paul has been saying. I think Paul is making the point that men and women and men for that matter, excuse me, are sanctified by stepping into the roles and responsibilities that God has entrusted to him. Here he is using childbearing simply as an example of something that only women can do. It, li it likely also connects to the fact that the Ephesian heresy had something to do with denying marriage, which subsequently meant denying childbearing as well. But the point being that as men and women in particular and the church at large embrace our distinct roles and responsibilities, we progressively become more and more like Jesus. We, like Paul says elsewhere, work out our salvation 
as we fully embrace God's call and design on our lives in faith, in love, and in holiness. And here's why I say that. Because to embrace any role, any role whatsoever, always requires trust. I won't pretend like this instruction is anything other than what it is. It's a prohibition. It's a limitation. And I know that that is hard for many of us. But we must understand that every time God gives us an instruction or a limitation, it is always and only for our good. God is never trying to take something away from us, but he is always trying to give something to us, namely himself. And sometimes what can happen is is that we can get so consumed with where God puts up the fence that we can fail to enjoy and experience the goodness of the field that he's provided with it. But that's what trust does. Trust is learning to enjoy the field God has given us. And trust is what God ultimately wants for us. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Trust that God is not only, not only has our good in mind, but he is for us and not wanting to do anything that's going to lead to our demise. And so this verse is saying that for the church to reflect the renewed humanity in Christ, it does not just mean that it must include qualified men embracing their responsibility but it must include women embracing and flourishing as the Ezer made in the image of God, flourishing as sisters gifted for the work of God in our world, flourishing as wives and mothers and grandmothers, flourishing as leaders and teachers and intellectuals and professionals, all for the good of the church, all for the good of humanity, and all for the glory of God. And that's who we want to be. We wanna be a people who trust Jesus deeply and step into his design for life in the kingdom of God. So let me tell you what this looks like here for us. Here, this means there is no role outside of the role of elder or pastor that a woman cannot do. If you are a woman here, just like non-elder men, you have the freedom to use your gifts and abilities, whatever they may be, to build up the body of Christ underneath the oversight of our pastors. This means we either have or want to have women involved in every rung of our ministry underneath our pastors. We, we have women leading and coaching life groups. We have women leading and teaching classes and seminars. We have women uh, using their gifts in kid town and hosting. We have women on our staff and women on our financial teams. And we want women upfront and visible as partners in the work of the kingdom together. We hold tightly to the reality that scripture is saying, let women lead as women and men lead as men and some qualified men lead as overseeing pastors of the church, reflecting God's intention for life in the garden. We believe that if women aren't freed up to use their gifts, our church is missing out. We are losing as a church. Just like a building without its strengthening support beams can't stand, Neither can the church of God without women and everything that they contribute to it. We want to be obedient to the truth, which means men and women figuring out these roles together so that every member can thrive. But likewise, if qualified men are not stepping into their God-given responsibility, and if that God-given responsibility isn't being honored by all, then we are also losing as a church. And that's something we'll talk about more in the coming weeks. But on that note, 
I just wanna conclude by giving some parting words to my brothers and my sisters. First to, to my sisters, I just wanna say this to you. Flourish. Flourish. Like I said before, sometimes we get so caught up in what this passage is restricting that we can miss the beauty of what it's giving. Sometimes we can be so concerned with pushing down the fence that we forget to enjoy the field that God has given us. You are invited to come sit at the feet of King Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and to do the things that he did. Paul says, let women come and learn. And that invitation is for you too. I know far too many women who don't care to become biblically sharp, who don't care to become more like Jesus. And I just wanna say to you, don't let that be you. Flourish, embrace God's intentions for you. And by that, I also mean use your gifts. Use your gifts, whatever they are. Use them for the purpose of God in humanity and through our church. Whatever you do, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't sit on the sidelines. You are is there. And I encourage you this week to just ask yourself the question, would those in my life characterize me that way? But to our brothers, my word for you is honor. Honor. There is a reason why these words have been so controversial. And that's because they have been abused. Men, maybe well-meaning, maybe not, have used these words to actually work against what the scriptures teach, to work against the flourishing of creation, namely the flourishing of our sisters in Christ. And so I wanna encourage you to honor our sisters. Honor them, lift them up celebrate their contributions to the work of God and honor your sisters by embracing some responsibility. Honor your sisters by embracing some responsibility. Ironically, in most churches in the United States, it's the men who are floundering, not the women. By and large, the women tend to do okay, but men are the ones who tend to be present but passive, if not altogether absent. Take some ownership so we can all flourish. I've met men in the past who won't serve in Kittown because that's quote unquote women's work. Nope, that is all of our work. I know men, especially young men who want the, excuse me, who want the pulpit, but aren't first willing to embrace the pew. They aren't first willing to embrace learning to follow Jesus and using what they've got for the kingdom behind the scenes because they feel the sense of entitlement to be up front as men. Some of you love the ease of life that you get, when you, uh, you get when you let your wife carry the load. Some of you are perfectly content to let our sisters do the work of ministry while you focus on your career or your hobbies or whatever else. Listen, don't let that be you. That's dishonoring. It's dishonoring to our sisters and it's dishonoring to the intentions that God has for your manhood. You need to step up and lead. We need you to step up and lead. We need some drive and some passion and some energy from you for the things of Christ, especially in this season where fatigue and apathy towards the things of Jesus most easily win the day. We need you. Our church needs you. Your family needs you. And so does your own soul. Every person matters. Every contribution counts. We are less without you. So let's step in this as men and women together.
Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that you are the architect of creation and the designer of everything that is. Father, I ask that you would make us ever more into the picture of renewed humanity. Help us to rehearse life in your kingdom in the here and now for everyone around us, especially those who find themselves yearning for it. Grant us the strength and the wisdom and the humility to fully embrace our design as men and women. Make us men who embrace responsibility and women who utilize their strength. May none of us sit on the sidelines. We need you in this. We need your spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.